Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Bonnie Quinn. This week... I think there is danger of a Chinese demon collapse if we see trouble with local government financing. Shuli ran on the standoff between President Xi and COVID-0. Also, Tim Culpin on the standoff between the U.S. and China on semiconductors. First, though, to financial stability in U.S. markets after Thursday saw a 5% swing for the S&P 500. I spoke with Bloomberg Opinion's John Authors. So, John, we got the CPI print, which showed yes. hotter inflation than expected, and the market sold off. And then suddenly we got a turnaround, a 5% swing on Thursday. Yes. How much did technical levels and programmed buying feature? First of all, I'm going to be honest, of course I don't know mm. quite why that happened. Uh, that 5% turnaround makes it in the top five or six different people have come up with different estimates that I've seen all time. So yes. that's a, a seriously big deal on crazy no news. Um, the best guess is that it's about technical levels. If you look at it on a chart, if you do a Fibonacci retracement, mm-hmm. and we had reached the point of 3,500 on the S&P, which is obviously a round number, and it's also exactly where you reach the 50% retracement. You've lost half of the gain that you made since the COVID bottom. Exactly. And it's too simple to blame everything on algorithms. Some mm. human wrote the algorithm... But enough people were programmed to buy that you got a bid at that point. The inflation numbers were unquestionably bad and worse than it was reasonable to hope. You know, service inflation was up. Shelter inflation was up. All the sensible measures, trimmed mean, median, sticky price inflation, everything across the board was its highest in 40 years. So it was unquestionably bad, but it wasn't game-changing. Everybody assumed the Fed was going to hike 75 bips. So after the initial shock, there may have been a grasp of, well, actually, this isn't going to change anything much. And stocks are really cheap now. Which is what we've seen before. Mm. You know, bad news is good news, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, And also more visibility. Maybe we know that there is two 75 basis point rate hikes coming now. Well, that's what the market certainly seems to think. Yes. So how much more damage could be done? People are still out there saying the bottom isn't in. There could be another 20% downside to stocks. That's the Jamie Damon line, yes. I still think there perfectly easily could be Mm. a 20% downside. I think the the critical number is inflation. The longer it keeps doing this, or if the headline sets a new high, then the Fed really has no choice but to keep on pushing so the market's pricing in a terminal rate beyond 4.85% right now. We have yes. a 10-year yield, very close to 4% again, which is also worth noting. David Einhorn said this week that value investing might be dead because no one knows the value of anything these days. Thoughts? Yes. I thought what he said was fascinating. Mm. Uh, the critical point, certainly both low rates and the growth of passive investing could certainly be said to have undermined the whole business, the whole profession of value investing, of stock picking. So there are plenty of well-trained people, but these days 
it's about macro and models and the kind of you know technical stuff we were just talking about exactly. rather than crunching your way through balance sheets. So I did think there was a lot of sense in the argument he made that you can spot that something's too cheap and buy and then wait for other people to notice what you've noticed. And this time, nobody else notices. Yes. This has been said both about the growth of growth stocks and about the growth of passive. There has logically at some point to come a time when the screamingly best way to make money is going and looking for all the ridiculously cheap stocks that have been created by passive investing. For years, it's been the idea of going to private markets because that's where the inefficiencies are. Mm -hmm. At this point, I think David Einhorn probably is right. But, but sorry, yeah, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, mm. even in a broader sense, no one really knows what the forward earnings of the S&P 500 should be. No one really knows no. what the value of anything is. And that you have to throw in the, the shock of the pandemic followed by the shock of the Ukraine war. Mm. We don't have any good precedents to rely on here. And so there's and big uncertainty about the strong dollar. Yeah, yeah exactly. All um, but I, I still ultimately think that there comes a point when... 10 years from now, there probably are going to be some diligent, long-only people who bought a bunch of cheap stocks who will look as clever as David Swenson of the Yale Endowment yes. did at one point. And will be rewarded. Is liquidity an issue? I mean, obviously, it might be in Britain, depending on how things pan out with the pension mm. funds. Are there concerns for the broader markets? Yes. You can tell from the results that they're not as acute as they were in Britain, where, you know, I had a talk to a contact who referred to quantitative destruction, that uh, you had all these structures that had been built up to take advantage of low rates, but were also necessary because low rates made the investment arena so, so dull, mm. made it, gave you a big incentive to take more risk. In the case of the UK, plainly, we got to the, we got to the point where there wasn't enough liquidity. And it's still, we hope, only a liquidity issue. Mm. Pension funds have had a solvency issue for a long time, but hopefully this is, remains a, as a liquidity issue. Otherwise, it could be an extraordinary week next week, too. Well, <laughs> I, I, I mean, you start talking about things like TARP bailouts. The parallel is quite close that when it came to actually putting capital into banks, it wasn't the Fed that did that. It was Congress using taxpayers' money. And that turned out to be the single most important step in ending the crisis. Similarly, the Bank of England can't print money and put it in people's pension plans it's going to have to come from taxpayers, if it comes to that, which is not a pleasant thought in the slightest, but it's somewhat less unpleasant than people going without their pensions. Bloomberg Opinions, John Authors. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This Sunday, Chinese President Xi Jinping will give the opening address to the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China. The week-long event happens twice a decade. This year, it will celebrate the 100th anniversary of the establishment of the Communist Party of China. President Xi is expected to win a third term as president and general secretary of China's Communist Party. I spoke with Bloomberg Opinion's Shuli Ren on why markets are seeing this particular party congress as a line in the sand. First, though, here's Australia's former ambassador to China, Jeff Raby, on President Xi Jinping's constituency Sunday and beyond. China does have an institutional mechanism of governance, say, unlike Russia these days, and Xi Jinping is a servant of the party. So at the point at which the party feels that Xi is in some way undermining the party's legitimacy, its support in the broader community, then elite members of the party could well start to question whether she is the right person to lead the party. So, surely, is there any danger at all that she will not secure a third term at the party congress, or is it a foregone conclusion that obviously he will? I think it's a foregone conclusion already. I mean, like, uh, he already went abroad one month ahead of schedule. And this Congress is set to start in October instead of originally scheduled in November. So I think he has already this position locked up. Now, is it wishful thinking on the part of Wall Street and traders globally that President Xi will pivot to prioritizing the economy after the CPC, shifting away from COVID zero and so on? Is there any actual evidence that the CPC might be a line in the sand and that he might change policies after that? I don't think it's necessarily wishful thinking, in part because I'm in that camp. I think it's just inevitable because holding on to the COVID zero policy is very, very expensive. The last two years, China was doing quite okay. 2020 and 2021. So they had a little bit of fiscal room to hold on to COVID zero until the party congress. But 2023, where's the fiscal money coming from? And it's going to be very difficult for China to continue. They will have to pivot. But vaccine take up has been relatively low in China. Why not mandate vaccine take up and open the economy as opposed to allowing people choose on vaccinations, but having rolling lockdowns? Has there been much debate on vaccines in China? It's funny because, you know, the vaccination drive pretty much stopped even after the Shanghai lockdown. I mean, my parents are in Shanghai. No one asked them to take any jabs. Mm. Um, I think it's kind of a foregone conclusion. Now, like in Hong Kong, we have very similar problems. The elderly, they don't want to get vaccinated again and again, right? So Hong Kong still open. What Hong Kong did was they called the 3,000 elderly people and they say, do you want to get vaxxed? And almost all of them say no. So the Hong Kong government said we just have to open. And I suspect that's what's going to happen to China. Even back then in 2020, when China was starting the vaccination drive, they started with the younger working population instead of with the elderly. But Julie, is there any talk of what might happen if China does open and the vaccination rate is low? Hospitals might get overwhelmed. I mean, it might look something like the original pandemic here. 
right now we are seeing Omicron. China has escaped from Delta, and Delta was the bad one. So I think it should be okay. Very recently, there was a government document urging the county-level local government to prepare themselves for hospitalization. And some people on the marketplace see it as a tentative sign that China is preparing to reopen. Mm. Um, and the vaccination rate is lower for the elderly, but for the broader population, it's not low. People are jabbed three times. Now, you mentioned the local governments, the local economies. To an extent, President Xi has delegated fixing China's economy to the local municipalities. Do they have the resources to jump in if there's some kind of a crisis or some kind of an economic slowdown that they can't bear? No, that's the problem because COVID zero has been ongoing for too long. According to Morgan Stanley, the Chinese government at the local level has spent two trillion yuan on COVID zero controls. I mean, that's just money wasted. And the local governments also rely on land sales, and that's not going very well as well. And that's why, like, I think ultimately China just has to pivot away from COVID zero, perhaps within months, because this clear it's just not going to work. So there's obviously the property market crisis that we heard a lot about over the last year. There's regulation around education, around gaming and so on. But while we've seen a lot of bondholder pain, we haven't seen, for example, the kind of systemic crisis that we might have seen during the great financial crisis in the United States. Is there any reason to think that China is in danger of having one in the banking system or elsewhere? I think there is danger of a Chinese demon collapse if we see trouble with local government financing. Developer debt, all the stuff that we see in the news headlines, a lot of it is U.S. dollar debt that's offshore, right? But if we're talking about interbank liquidity freeze onshore, that will have to do with local government debt because they have issued a lot. Yeah. Does she have any wish to attract overseas capital into mainland markets? I mean, clearly at the moment he has a lot on his plate. He has to figure out how to handle Russia. The G20 is coming up and obviously the CPC is what he has to get past first. But at the same time, investor confidence has definitely been damaged during his second term. Any evidence to suggest that he might want to woo investors again somehow? I think he is not Mao or Kim Jong-un. Like, I do feel that he still wants to reconnect with the world, right? Like, he pretty much has not helped Russia during this Ukraine conflict. That shows that he doesn't want to be the pariah globally. And also, like, the Chinese government has struck deals with the U.S. SEC to let the auditing committee audit Chinese companies' accounting papers, right? Mm-hmm. And then also she is coming to G20. So I think he still wants to connect with the world. What market indicators are most reliable for explaining the shape of China's markets? What do you look at these days? Is it just the major benchmarks, truly, and the offshore and onshore bonds? I think for me, I still look at stocks because they are quite volatile. And any hint of possibly China reopening, you are going to see a pretty sharp bounce, in part because their valuation is very, very low right now. So I, I will look at that. Will there be a yuan policy? We've obviously seen the yuan weaken dramatically, as have we seen many currencies weaken dramatically in the face of the dollar strength. But how do she and the PBOC interact? Will he have thoughts on how strong or weak the yuan should be? I don't think they have a certain number, 7.4, 7.5. I mean, they're preparing the public saying, you know, whatever the yuan is, it's against the stronger U.S. dollar strength. And then compared to the yen or the euro or the British pound, the yuan is doing fairly well. And there is some incentive, to be honest, for the Chinese yuan to be weaker because Mm. China still relies on a lot of exports, right? Mm. Yeah, for sure. It's a double-sided sword. What else will we hear out of the CPC? I mean, obviously, human rights will almost definitely not be addressed. But what else will we be looking for post-CPC? I think the 
the, the most interesting thing for the Congress is the lineup. Who are, what's the ranking of all the politicians? She is on top. Who is going to be the prime minister and who is going to be the head of the political standing committee? Because unfortunately for economic policies, it used to be just economic policies. People at the minister level, they can just handle major decisions and stuff. But unfortunately, the economic policies have become political in the last few years take housing policy or COVID zero policy, for instance. So who is on top on the standing committee is going to be very important to watch. Bloomberg Opinion's Shuli Ren. The U.S. this week unveiled a new set of restrictions on Chinese access to U.S. semiconductor technology. I spoke with Bloomberg Opinion's Tim Culpin in Taipei on the ramifications for China, Taiwan and the United States. So, Tim, President Xi will likely be appointed to a third term after the Party Congress next week. He obviously has a lot to contend with. How far up his priority list will China's tech prowess be, and specifically its chip prowess? It's got to be very high on his list. There's a lot of things on uh, Xi Jinping's mind right now, COVID zero. Retaking Taiwan is but getting a chip industry that's up to global standards and competing with the US and with Taiwan and South Korea is something he very, very much wants to achieve. It's all about independence, uh, technology resilience and independence of China. As you say, China had been aiming for almost self-sufficiency in semiconductors. How much of a thorn in Xi Jinping's side will this round of restrictions be? Can he stave off some of the worst ramifications? It is going to be very potent and quite damaging, I think, to China's chip goals and dreams. The Chinese have been somewhat catching up. They've found a lot of progress in the last 20 years. This is not just a Xi Jinping move. Previous administrations in Beijing have been wanting to build up a chip sector. Xi Jinping has been pushing it harder and harder. And they have made progress. But it's important to remember that the West, and I include Taiwan and South Korea in that, are also moving ahead. The chip industry moves very, very quickly. So, in fact, what we've seen over the last decade is that while China has improved, so has the West, and the gap has not actually closed. And that's a little bit of an embarrassment for Beijing because they've spent a lot of money trying to close that gap. Now with the Biden administration's latest rules, it's going to be harder and harder to close that gap. And I would predict that maybe in the next five years, the gap might widen again as a result of these new restrictions. Now, Ursula von der Leyen pointed out that the EU doesn't want to be in a situation where they're dependent on, say, China for chips, like Europe became dependent on Russia for gas. When it comes to the US and China, tease apart for us, who exactly is dependent on whom? One of the key issues is that, yes, everyone's reliant on the West chips. The US, even though they don't manufacture a lot of chips, is a leader in the chip industry because they create a lot of the technologies for example, the equipment and the software needed to make chips. And then they basically outsource it to Asia, to Taiwan, to South Korea, to Japan and elsewhere. And that's something that doesn't sit comfortably with the United States and doesn't sit comfortably with China. So ironically, China and the U.S. are in a similar position, have a similar level of discomfort in that they don't have control over the manufacturing of even the chips that they design themselves. Mm. And both sides, both Beijing and Washington, want to do something about it, and they're trying a lot of money to try and rectify that problem. Literally passing the CHIPS Act, $52 billion to support domestic semiconductor production in the United States. Now, you're in Taipei. Obviously, Taiwan is watching all of this with huge interest as well. Talk to us about TSMC. TSMC's model is to allow its own clients design their own chips, but it's a company that produces 92% of the world's most advanced semiconductors. Will it be a victim of this chip war? 
You could say it's a victim of the chip war. It's also, I guess, a major beneficiary of the chip war. Mm. They're definitely in the crosshairs of Beijing. There's been all sorts of dark humor about, you know, taking Taiwan just for the chips. Mm. Um, that, of course, would not work. It would fail. At the same time, Taiwan has found itself front and center of the global stage because now suddenly everyone has woken up and realized how much they need Taiwan and how much they need TSMC. People like myself who've been watching this for two decades have known about this for a long time, but it's happened kind of under their noses without people realizing it. Now suddenly with the, the pandemic, chip shortages, and this recent need for more electronic products, everybody's woken up and realized how much they need TSMC. And TSMC just is sitting there going, well, this is great. Uh, you want me to sell off a factory in, in your territory? Show me the money. And that's what they're doing with Arizona. That's what they're doing with Japan and what they may do in Europe. They're getting other countries to basically pony up some of the difference in setting up a factory. TSMC is in a very nice spot right now. Well, and so this brings me to another point. Chris Miller has written a history of semiconductors. It concludes that basically World War II was decided by steel and aluminum. The Cold War was defined by atomic weapons. And the rivalry, he says, between the US and China may well be determined by computing power. Is that an overstatement? I think that's pretty true. Even if you think of kinetic weapons, that is, you know, bombs and missiles and planes, they need chips. In fact, you know, the first guided missiles which were deployed in Vietnam the Americans were dropping a lot of bombs on Vietnam and nothing was hitting their targets until they used semiconductors to help guide them to their destination. And then, of course, we have a cyber warfare. And that is a huge, huge deal. You can create a lot of damage by hacking your rival systems. We saw that happen when a U.S. group, including the U.S., hacked into Iran's nuclear plant and basically messed up their centrifuges for making nuclear materials. We've also seen that when Colonial Pipeline brought down by hackers last year. So the semiconductor is very important in this process. At the end of the day, you still need boots on the ground if you're going to take a territory, as as Vladimir Putin is discovering. But semiconductor is a very important part of being able to do that. Tim Culpin. As always, do get in touch. Comments and opinions always welcome at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at bloomberg.net. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. 
Many commodity prices are down substantially from their peaks. That's, however, cold comfort for nearly 800 million food insecure around the world. Let's get to David Fickling for some explanation. So, David, there was huge relief in grain markets when we saw that first ship leave the port of Odessa for Lebanon. Prices have come down for all sorts of grains and oil seeds, and it's a big difference from when we spoke earlier in the year about the difficulties in palm oil, wheat and other markets. But in terms of food security, the situation is much more complicated and multifactored than simply prices are too high. I think that's right. It very much feels like we're past the sort of acute phase of 2022's food crisis. But I think there's a chronic problem underlying this, to use the sort of medical metaphor. I mean, you look at a bunch of commodities, spring wheat, the benchmark in the U.S., it's down more than a third at this point from where it was in March. Palm oil, you mentioned oil seeds, that's down 40% since April. Corn prices are down by nearly a quarter since the start of May. Sugar and Arabica coffee, they're all at one-year, nine-month lows. So although the price of these commodities are still actually you know, reasonably high by 10-year standards, certainly compared to where we were a few months ago, they've come down a great deal and we're starting to see signs that maybe some of these things are returning to normal. So that should Um, be great and we should be very excited for the world's poor and hungry that perhaps they have a chance uh, to get food again, but that's not quite the case, is it? uh, That's right, because I think there's a tendency for us in rich countries looking at commodity markets to rather overestimate the importance of the prices of benchmark commodity futures as a sort of index of the affordability of food for the world's poorest. It's certainly a factor, but one of many factors and not even, I would say, the most important factor. You know, if I was to say one factor above all that affects food insecurity, and and bear in mind the population of people facing undernourishment who don't have enough food through the year to give them a balanced diet, It's looking now at being the highest in 2021 since the mid-2000s, about 768 million people, possibly higher than that. One in 10 people in the world, very nearly, do not have enough nourishment to provide them with a balanced diet. The 2010 saw a real improvement. That number, far from the sort of 800 million we're seeing now, was in the 500 to 600 millions. It was quite significantly lower. A couple of factors I mentioned, war and insecurity, that really is probably the biggest of all factors. And, you know, one sort of measure for the sort of human cost of that is probably if you look at the number of displaced people, refugees and and internally displaced people. It's it's been soaring over the past decade. Mm. It's now running at double its level of a decade ago. And in 2021, it rose 8% in one year. And there's a tendency, obviously, to see these benchmark commodity prices as the feel and end all of food prices. But actually, I mean, you know, I always go back to the great Indian economist Amartya Sen and his analysis of famines. Previously, people talked about famine as something where there simply wasn't enough food in the world to feed people or food in that particular region to feed people. And he went back at it and went back at the data on famines and said, well, it's very rarely a general shortage of food. It's generally actually that the price of food has has risen beyond the level of people's ability to afford it. And that can be caused by rising food prices. It can be caused by falling incomes. And it can be caused by other indexes of civil disorder um, and a lot of those that we're seeing right now. Civil disorder, but even things like insurance on ships, crew for ships and so on. So many varied factors go into the price of something and the delivery of something. In fact, I was looking at the overall World Food Price Index and it's still at 154.2, which is not that far off this year's March high of 159.7. So in spite of large drops, nearly 800 million people are going hungry right now and that could rise. 
talk to us a little bit about the effect of the dollar and how that set in motion a whole range of things like devaluations and so on that also affected the price and the deliverability of food. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's crucially important. We tend to look at these commodity prices in dollars and most agricultural commodities, a few exceptions, palm oil is one, are priced in US dollars. Obviously, we've seen a lot of dollar strength in recent months, and that's particularly bad for a lot of emerging market currencies. These are countries that are some of the world's biggest food importers and are most dependent on imports from overseas. So take Egypt, for instance. Egypt is the world's largest wheat importer. The Egyptian pound has actually been collapsing over the past year. So whereas the rise of the US dollar price of wheat has driven up costs by about 23%, if you add in the devaluation of the Egyptian pound, that's added another 25% on top of that. Pakistan is not actually a huge wheat importer, but it is dependent on imports to some extent. The rupee slump has added 53% on top of that 23% increase from the US dollar price. And Turkey, I mean, Turkey is a wealthier country, but of course the Turkish lira has been in a terrible state. So the collapsing lira has added about 171% on top of that 23% increase from the from the. US dollar weight. It's horrifying. We talk about 9, 8% inflation. We're looking for it to go below that in the United States. But if you're in one of these countries, you're literally talking about what nearly 200% added to costs. That's that's hyperinflation. That's insane. You can't feed your people yeah. with that. Yes. And of course, you know, if you think about how a lot of these governments manage this, Egypt in particular, I think, is an interesting example because subsidized bread is really the central part of the Egyptian welfare state. In fact, if you look at their fiscal numbers, their food subsidies, they spend as much on pretty much all other aspects of social security put together. So, of course, what happens when the Egyptian pound is devalued and wheat prices go up further? Well, Egypt has been out in the market making big purchases of um, of wheat. It's, of course, it was one of the big buyers of Ukrainian and, and Russian wheat, so it sort of suffered from that. But it still needs to buy this because it's a sort of crucial element of social stability. And what's happening as a result of that, that is, of course, impacting Egypt's fiscal balances. So this is going to be an impact that will linger. Their fiscal balances and their external balances are deteriorating as a result of this. Now, I don't have a macroeconomic crystal ball for Egypt and know where they're going in the next two years. But if you look at the situation of countries like Pakistan and Sri Lanka that mm. have been you know, making their trips to the IMF recently, you can be put in a very difficult situation when you're having to subsidize something like that in the context of weaker fiscal and external balances. Right, and then you're subject to a whole range of IMF conditions for the foreseeable future. And of course, you mentioned Sri Lanka. It's in default. Pakistan is staring at default. And they both, no coincidence, have massive social unrest, in part because people have to stand in line for food for days. And if you're somebody with mouths to feed or you've lost your job because of COVID and suddenly there's no tourism in your country, you must be living under severe stress, never mind being undernourished. The jobs thing I think is crucial and it's often underestimated. This is another of these long COVID effects. A hundred million people worldwide were laid off. The global labour force of employed people dropped by a hundred million in 2020 for the first time in living memory. And in terms of the people who are living below the global poverty line, $1.90 a day, about 97 million were pushed below the global poverty line by COVID. And so if you're in the top 40% of the world's population, your income's uh, at this point down about 2.8% below where you'd have expected it to be before the pandemic. But if you're in the bottom 40%, it's 6.7% down. And of course, those are the people who are 
most constrained and most dependent on being able to afford food. David, you mentioned some Southeast Asian nations that we have been talking about on the programme. Tell us where else is suffering badly, obviously many countries in Africa. Yeah, I think Africa is always on the front lines of a lot of these things. If you look at the number of people who are undernourished, the rate in Africa is just different to anywhere else in the world. Even now, where things have kicked up, it's probably about 10% of the population of the world as a whole faces undernourishment. In Africa, it's about 20%. It's double the level. So although there are a larger aggregate number of people in Asia, for instance, who are affected by hunger just because the population is so much larger, I think around 425 million in Asia, but 280 million people in Africa, really, you know, a fifth of the population are affected by that. One interesting thing about Africa that also makes it a little bit different to a lot of these other parts of the world is that because so many countries in sub-Saharan Africa are really at the bottom end of the income distribution, they're particularly disconnected from global commodity markets. So they're actually particularly unaffected by a lot of what we're talking about in terms of the wheat price and the palm oil price, simply because the incoming supply chains and the availability of cash to afford imported global commodities are simply not there. Mm. So people are in tar- really very heavily dependent on locally produced produce and the price of locally produced goods. So it's really quite a different picture to what we're talking about, certainly in a lot of you know, Middle East and, and Asian countries where there is poverty. These global flows matter a little bit more. Well, and that's another question about globalization. Because of the fact that we have globalized commodity markets, and we need to have because countries can't feed themselves, there's no way back from this, right? There's no sort of let's have our own supply chain because some countries just can't produce. Indeed. And, you know, I'd say most countries are actually better off being able to be plugged into those global supply chains being able to benefit from those commodity flows. Of course, one of the other areas that we've not talked about that's a big driver of hunger is local climate and weather conditions. Of course, there's been a very severe three-year drought in East Africa in recent years. You're just seeing in the news recently these very severe floods in Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan, as a country that's more plugged into those global commodity flows, will probably in many ways do a lot better than East Africa because despite their own fiscal problems, they can benefit from food imports. They can afford food imports, but a lot of those countries in West Africa can't afford. So these ships that are leaving Ukraine, while it's wonderful and everything, and the port of Odessa being open again with a humanitarian corridor is, is, is fantastic, it's really not going to provide that much relief for that many people. It will, it'll, it'll help certain parts of the world, the sort of more middle-income parts of the world, like the Middle East, like parts of South Asia. The lower-income parts of the world, they have much more severe problems, and it's going to take more than that to actually solve those problems. David Fickling. We're now choosing to end all conversations. Not with you, though. Please do get in touch. I'm at Bonnie Quinn on Twitter or send your thoughts to vquinn at bloomberg.net. Opinions and comments always very welcome. We're produced, as always, by Eric Mollo. And don't forget, we're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify or your preferred platform. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion, I'm Bonnie Quinn. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.